0: Hey friends, this is Andrew Dion coming to you from New Geneva Academy. We are happy to be bringing you the following episode of Out of Our Minds. You'll be hearing a new voice on this reboot, Mr. Andrew Henry. Andrew is a member of Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana, and runs a machine shop that specializes in making holsters for firearms. As you are accustomed to, you will also be hearing from Pastor Tim Bailey. Today's topic, Does it Take a Church to Raise a Child?
1: Enjoy the show. Hi, Tim. How are you? Hello, Andrew. Good to be with you. It's good to be with you.
0: So the question of how we raise our children in church is becoming more and more pressing as we add each child that we are then raising How many in the do you have now? We've got five. I had lunch yesterday with Dave, and his wife is expecting their 11th.
1: <laughs> and uh, that's—I don't think any of us are surprised.
0: <laughs> no, I don't, but I, there's there's real pressure there, and as the kids grow up and the fruit starts to show up, we now have our first teenager, and we're wrestling. And with it's them.
1: a girl, which always makes the teenage years a little bit more difficult. You think? Oh, yeah. I know.
0: <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Yeah, and I'm we, not
1: just talking about us. I'm we tra- de-
0: we definitely have entered some new yeah. territory. Quite recently, and it's different. It's different. So the question of, does it take a village? How do we think of raising our kids in church and understanding how they fit in there? They're they're not adults. They may or may not be baptized communicant members, depending
1: on their age. Um, and depending on whether you're credo, pedo. True. Whether you believe in infant baptism. But we're not
0: even going to touch that question. Well,
1: yeah, but some people might wonder why you could possibly be talking about people that aren't communing at this time, and uh, I have a grandson who I talked to him this last week about the fact that, you know, he has never been willing to profess his faith to the elders, and he's never joined the church, and it's... It's a very serious thing to see a man go into his adulthood without having confessed his faith in a way that's subordinate to the elders of the church. Yep, He confesses it to us and to his parents.
0: My, the only thing I would say about the question of baptism is I was raised by Christian parents, but I don't believe I came to faith until I was nearly done with high school. And so the question of how you navigate those in-between years is, I don't think necessarily super clear cut and even our expectations for what our our children should demonstrate how their faith will show is going to change it's going to vary in certain ways a lot from child to child and in other ways not
1: yeah but as i listen to you through the ears of listeners there's going to be a variety of people who have an inclination to say that any problems we speak of or any uh, hypotheticals we bring up are a function of us getting our theology wrong, of us getting our sacraments wrong. You know how the tendency of people when it comes to politics is to say, well, are you post millennial or aren't you? I think a similar thing is at work that families, there are many families that trust too much in the sacraments. And by that, I don't mean that the sacraments don't do anything. I'm simply saying that we have to realize that uh, the transitional years are difficult for everyone. And how you practice the sacraments is not, you know, the ultimate solution to any problems that might occur in the transitional years. Yeah. And so please don't judge us at our sacramentology as we talk about problems and think it's just a function of us having bad theology. Yeah,
0: although I I assume that a lot of problems in my life are a function of my bad theology,
1: right? Yeah, I'm just skeptical about the people listening who might think that they can solve it for you, and I don't think they know you very well. Uh, Explain to them that you were educated by Jesuits.
0: I was educated by Jesuits, and most of that was good. Some of it was bad. A lot of it was weird, but I enjoyed it. (laughs) Um, The the question of... Cradle baptism and pedo baptism, though, is one that is kind of a unique blend in our church, and so I do understand always that when I talk to people who come from either a predominantly pedo Baptist or a predominantly cradle Baptist church, that certain things that I going that I'm that I'm going to say are going to strike their ears oddly and import context and meaning that mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. mean to
1: bring. Yes,
0: so there's always the challenge. So of, cut us
1: some slack.
0: Yeah, we're we're. We're an odd duck. We might say some odd duck things, and there are no doubt problems with my theology.
1: And but, mine. But don't don't be dismissive of the very serious things that we talk about here. If they threaten you, just writing them off to us having a bad doctrine of baptism or communion.
0: Yeah. Particularly in the teenage years when kids are starting to separate themselves, be more self-conscious of their own identity, be able to have more agency in where they spend their time, how they spend whatever money they have, what they pour their time and attention into. The the interplay between youth group and home groups and Sunday morning worship and volunteering in church ministries that are appropriate for them to volunteer in at that age. Like we have in our nursery program, we have a lot of teenagers as assistants in a room. We never have a 14-year-old running a nursery room, but it's great help for an adult who's running the room to have a 14-year-old who can make sure that everybody's got their graham crackers. And those kinds of opportunities are not just, you know, toy ministry. They are real ministry, just at a small scale, at relatively low stakes. And deciding whether we choose those for our kids and require their participation <laughs> or give them the ability to choose like sports is a big thing our kids are starting to get interested in different mm-hmm. sports and they can flip back and forth from thing to thing week to week month to month and i can either say we're going to pick one and stick with it and you're going to be stuck with it or say okay we tried that first semester do you want to keep doing it and if the ki- if the kid says no i really don't want to keep doing that That balance of, does my kid need to learn to toughen up and push through things, have discipline, learn to persevere, or am I just trying to fit a square peg in a round hole with this combo when I should stop? Because I have a very, very high tolerance for square peg in round hole situations. I I will just keep hammering, tapping away, tapping away for a long, long time, often longer than I should.
1: Yeah, this is the first time we've podcasted together, and I'm immediately realizing that you and I will come at this, the issues we're talking about, does it take a church to raise a child? Um, the fact that I'm a pastor does make me see it very differently. And let me illustrate that by saying that um, when... We have friends now who are contemplating moving a radically distant move with children who are getting older and it's all you're always hesitant to do that. Uh, if you can avoid it, because you know, as kids get into junior high and high school, their friendships become increasingly important to them. Yeah. And and so I remember when I resigned from a church, and that church was a happening place. It, it, uh, it, it was large, it had a happening youth group, it was, you know, the cool place to be. And I remember feeling acutely the loss of those relationships and the pizzazz, you know, the, yep. the trips, the Sunday evening, looking at the slides, the music, the skits, and then all of a sudden you go to the song that ever always played through my mind for years with our church was, you know, don't have to live like a refugee. <laughs> and that was my image of the sort of humbling and uh, s- shrinking. And so the youth group was non-existent.
0: Yeah. The church, it, the church I was in in high school did not have a youth group on principle.
1: Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. We should get into that sometime because I'd like to talk about that, but I don't want to do it right now. Sure. But from the beginning of our church, we required our children to participate in everything. Not only that, but to lead by example. We didn't just require that our children go to church and go to youth group, such as it was to Sunday school. But we required that they set the example. And we were Mary Lee and I were never apologetic about that. And I think it's hard for people to hear that who have children that are rebelling or that, that are saying, you know, Sunday school's awful, you know, are you, the guy that teaches Wednesday night, uh, he's he's so simplistic. Do I really have to go? You know, you can have a lot of good reasons for not wanting to go. But the fact is, my perception is there are only two possibilities. One possibility is, and this is particularly true for pastors, either you love your church and you demand that your children love what you love, starting with the Father Almighty, yep, or you're wheedling and cajoling and, and, and seeing how you can sort of you know, get them to go along and to not mind it too much. And I think that second way is the most common way. And I think it's disastrous because it doesn't come from love. It comes from duty. And I don't want to say I'm against duty. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there were many times where our kids thought that they were doing their right duty. And yet there was this never any question that Mary Lee and I love the church the church that we love the church we had, which are two separate things. yeah And so that's where I want to start when you ask, does it take a church? Yes, it takes a church because you can't be a Christian without loving the Bride of Christ. You can't. To love the church is to love Jesus Christ. It's to love God. That's the whole point of first John, you yeah know, saying that if
0: Jerusalem you know, above she is our mother.
1: Well, and also First John saying, don't say you love God if you don't love your brother. Yep. So I would start with love, the whole discussion that, you know, you, <laughs> I know it's hard to get some kids to go to church, but I've watched this for decades as a pastor. And I don't know whether I can get away with saying this, but almost without exception, The reason the children don't love church is because the parents are bitter, the parents are proud, the parents don't like the music, the parents don't like the preaching. Kids generally love the things their parents love and look down on the things their parents look down on. So if your children don't like the church— It's mirror. It is usually a mirror. There can be a one-off in a family, but if you have a whole family, I mean, how many families? I hear about this from pastors all the time, where there's a, there's a there's a father and a mother, and what he hears from the father and mother is that the kids in the youth group aren't being nice to their children. I mean, it's just such a common complaint. Yeah, And if you listen to the father and mother, typically what you'll hear is that the father and mother... Th- think this person and this person, this person offended them and they had a fight with this person and they're still nursing a grudge over this person. And so the whole relationship of the family is defined by everybody thinking that they've been done wrong. And so I just want to say right out of the bat, if your kids don't like the church, you better start by looking at yourself. If you were going to a counselor for your child and the counselor said to you, hey, you know, something I think it's not enough for me to meet with your child. I think I better meet with you and your husband also. Well, you'd submit to it. Well, I'm a pastor, and I'm saying the same thing to you about the relationship of your child with the church.
0: And I don't want anything to do with it. I'm just like, oh, no, no, no. I'm sure these are completely unrelated. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you do have a freedom to, to tell your pastor to kiss off Yeah, that you don't quite have with a professional counselor because... <laughs> You know, There's some authority with a professional counselor.
0: Or at least they're billing you by the hour. People, yeah, you're paying people for it. show up to things that they're paying for.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So yeah, the idea that if your kids don't love the church or they resent participating in the church, that that can often connect to an undercurrent of the same type of thing in the husband, in the wife, in the home overall in, in terms of how they prioritize things. And that makes sense, and I wonder for myself how much my kids see my participation in the things I do in church as being a function of dad being diligent and having a, an overdeveloped sense of duty versus dad having love for the church. And I actually don't know for sure how that comes across there are certain things in the church that I used to be more involved in that I'm less involved in now that I've consciously chosen to not be involved Mm -hmm. in. And it isn't that I have a total lack of criticism to make about those things even, Mm -hmm. but I can also still participate in the church with enthusiasm. And I believe my kids know I love the church, but I've never asked them that. (laughs)
1: Well, again, we're different personalities when you say, but I've never, I was expecting you to say, told them that. But you said, ask them that. And I would immediately say, don't ask them, tell them. (laughs) Just use the words. You know that I love the church. I absolutely love the church. Do you know how the church has cared for me through the years? Do you know how many times people have put up with me in this church and that's because of the love of God shed abroad. In other words, you're not me. You're, 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 you're an engineer kind of relational guy halfway in between. Yeah. Whereas I'm emotive. Most
0: of my friendships come
1: with torque settings. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I don't want to say that you know people need to be you know demonstrative and emotive and everything else. Yep. But I still say children know what you love and whom you love. You were talking about the church, and I, I was sitting here thinking, well, do they know that you love Caitlin? They do. Yeah. I don't think the children will be confused about your love for the church. That's my guess. Yeah. Although if you ask them, I'd say, no, <laughs> just, I mean, that's the transitional years. we will tell you no just for the heck of it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes, yes, they will. You <laughs> poke them a little bit and a bunch of no comes pouring out. <laughs> yeah. One of the things we've been processing is school choice and where our kids are going to go to school when they get to high school. Uh, our oldest is in eighth grade now and figuring out which schools we feel good about considering sending her to and what the various strengths and weaknesses, mm-hmm. opportunities and dangers in those different contexts would be, and how we would have to change our mode, our participation, in order to make sure that we stayed on top of those changes. Because it uh, the extent to which parenting into the early teenage years is not just shooting at a moving target, but it's like shooting at a moving target from a moving horse and like I'm bouncing up and down and she's bouncing up and down and everything in between is bouncing up and down and figuring out where we're headed and trying to make sure we both get there together. Um, my wife and I have been talking a lot about how we communicate about our children because she sees them at times a day that I never see them. I don't really know that that clearly how my kids behave at lunch because I'm not there for most of the lunches most of the time. Those things can turn into over years an enormous blind spot. There can be something that's going on that unless she explicitly tells me about it, it's she's just aware of it and isn't even aware that I could be unaware of it.
1: Yeah, the last five years, 10 years, I've become more concerned about those of us who understand that the husband's the head of the home because Adam was created first and then Eve. That we can get that truth and repent of our abdication, of our hatred of authority, of everything that is in our sexually anarchical world. All of our shirking of responsibility. Yeah, and all of women's sort of butchness and pushiness. You know, In other words, there are sins on both sides, but... We can repent of those things without us realizing the degree to which God has given the mother authority in the home and over the children, which must, uh, it must have a powerful impact on the husband. And that's not something people naturally get from the manosphere, from anybody talking today, because we just think... All we need to do is get it right that the husband's the father, you know, that he's, and that's not enough. And I I read this essay by, I'm going to forget the guy's name, but he was a pastor that Spurgeon just loved. And uh, it's an essay that he has in a book on womanhood where he talks about the influence of a mother spiritually and educationally. And I had never thought about that discreetly because, of course, what everybody does once they learn that the husband's the head of the home and that scriptural is they say, my husband is the head of our homeschool. My husband is the one that does devotions. My husband does the checkbook. My, you know, and it, and it becomes sort of this chest thumping thing for the man and this bragging for the woman because it shows she's godly. Yep, And I. I think that we have to recognize it because the woman has been given, and I don't want to put it crassly, but has given been given the breasts that from a very young age, she is tied to her children. Now she might not breastfeed for long, but she's still the one that God has naturally gifted to raise and to train the children. And this goes on for years. And so, yeah, if you're not there at lunch, there are things you don't know, things Caitlin has to explain to you. There are things that you need to know that you need to be not just receptive, but asking her about it. I mean, I can't tell you how, just today, you know, I'm saying to Mary Lee, well, what do you, what do you think of, of that? And was was that right? I mean, and so with our children We have to recognize, and some women who are mothers don't have these gifts, but most do. And we have to be careful to solicit from our wives what information, what judgments, what discernment they have about our children, especially as you get into teenage years. Because I have met few men that are willing to talk to their teenagers the way mothers are willing. Yeah, I mean, I used to sit and listen to Mary Lee talk to our teenagers, and I just wanted to shoot myself. I could not believe how interested she stayed, and how she just <laughs> went on and on and on. And you know, one of the worst things was giving them the plot of a book or a movie. You yeah, know, that just old joke. <laughs> My
0: kids can explain the the entire plot of a fifteen minute episode in only ninety minutes. <laughs> ah, I get hadn't me heard that.
1: Yeah. So can we go back to the question of, does it take a church? Yeah. You know, it does take a church. And this has come down on me with force in the last two weeks. Because my wife and I have a lot of contacts with pastors. And some of their families are not doing well. Okay? Yep. And it's not a one-off it's burp, 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 burp. just much more than a one off and it's not just one family. Yep. And we've been talking a lot about it because she she counsels the wives, the mothers. We visit them, we yep. know them intimately. And one of the things that came to us this last week was to realize that part of the toxic impact on those children growing up in some of these homes has been the culture of the church that that the father is the pastor of. And there are certain denominations, certain parts of the country, certain socioeconomic levels, where if you're pastor in that church and you don't realize that you must reform the culture if it is going to be a biblical church. And so you instead have a role of pastor. You preach, you counsel, you visit people in the hospital, you teach, you know what I'm saying. But you don't call, for instance, mothers to not put their children in daycare so they can protect their profession. Now that is a pretty radical cultural thing. Another cultural thing is if your church, they look at children as a lifestyle choice, they don't look at it as biblical obedience to the creation mandate that says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Yep. Up until 75 years ago, all Christians, Roman Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, everybody agreed that that was a command of God given in the state of perfection and that it was not abrogated. Um, John Murray and his Principles of Conduct talks about this. Now think, if you as a pastor preach and teach on the blessing of children and the fact that God has commanded us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, if you as a pastor don't teach Titus, where it says that older women are to teach younger women, and it says, "Be submissive, you know, but then it says to be domestic." In other words, that a mother's first priority should be her marriage and her children. Not her profession, and that it as a woman from Singapore. Actually, she she was from Taiwan. Asked us in premarital counseling, she said, "Well, do you think that if that if I have a child, that that I should stay home and be a mother?" She has a very high job in Microsoft over in Taiwan. And Mary look, looks at her and says, "Well, why would you want somebody else to raise your child?" Now, I'm making a point that's larger than working mothers it's larger than children, my point is, if you allow the culture, the socioeconomic, the educational, the geographical, you know, the culture of the Pacific Northwest ver- versus, say, South Carolina, if you allow those things to continue to be the status quo in your church and don't reform the most fundamental aspects of life in your church, that church is going to have a deleterious effect on your children. And so we need to think in terms of what kind of churches we're in when we say, yes, it does take a church. We want a church that is going to dignify motherhood, dignify femininity, not that's going to be hackneyed about it.
0: And if your church has a support group for dog moms, you have a problem. Oh my
1: goodness, Taiwan was so awful. With dogs. Ugh.
0: That should be an entire podcast episode. Oh, man. <laughs> the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of dog oh, bombs. Dogs.
1: They even <laughs> had dog jewelry stores. And so going back to the issue, it does take a church. And let me give a positive example. Um, I'll give two examples. I mean if you want to feel inadequate and insecure and fearful and faithless, be a father. Fatherhood brings out every single intense insecurity and fear and awareness of your failures and sin. And I remember when our daughter, Michael went, Mary Lee, with a couple other people, started a Christian school in town called White House. And this was at a time when there were just a couple of little classes in the basement of a church. And I remember there was a woman that was home, Valerie Boato, who was home from the Philippines as a missionary. And that year she taught, and I'm pretty sure it was Valerie and it wasn't her mother, but she taught our daughter, Michael. And one of the things that I have been not faithful in is prayer. We would pray as a family. We would pray at devotions and stuff. But I have not had a godly life with prayer the way I should. Yep. Anyhow, Michael went. And during this year, studying with this woman, she became a believer in prayer. Now, how much is that worth? You know, people think that they have to be the ones that give everything to their children. And, you know, and it is true. We have to give everything we can to our children, but we don't want to give them our sins. I don't want to give prayerlessness to my daughter, Michael. And I just rejoiced that God had provided this wonderful woman to teach the discipline and joy of prayer to my daughter. And so, yes, it takes a church. Now, you can say, well, you know, that was a school. It wasn't a church. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But it was the body of Christ that taught that to Michael. Give another example. When our oldest son, Joseph, became a junior high school student, it scared the snot out of me because I grew up largely without a dad in the home because he was out speaking everywhere when I became an adolescent. And so I had no clue, and it awakened every bit of fear in me that I would reproduce my dad's sort of uh, fears of teenagers and adolescents. He was great with little kids, and I was desperate. I didn't want to fail Joseph. I didn't want to fail him. I went to Tim Wagner, one of our elders, and I said, Tim, I don't know what to do. Would you pray for me? And he did pray for me. And I muddled through. And that's another reason it takes the church. We are able to go to other people and ask them to pray for us. We're able to, I can remember when sins were brought to me by my children and grandchildren. And I would go to one of the officers of the church and say, uh, my son, my, my, you know, this, that person, would you go talk to them because they've confessed this sin to me and I'd like your help with them. Yep. And so I want to say it is a beautiful thing to be able to have the church fill in our weaknesses. So many parents have a defensive attitude as if they've failed. If the church helps to admonish and teach and instruct and give faith to their children. And that's just not true. We all take promises when children are baptized as infants that will help the parents raise the children. Those those children will be our children. So those are some thoughts that come to my mind.
0: The idea of saying it does take a church, but the quality of the church matters is oh. very similar to the idea that absent fathers still dominate the home through their absence. The, the, the hole they leave doesn't just, go away. It's still there. And the defensiveness, I think about my own life as an adult in the church. And there is a pattern of expecting in myself that I'll get better at this over time. And I should bump into the guardrails less often (laughs) as I go. And certainly, yes, There should be wisdom. There should be sanctification. There should be growth in self discipline and the fruits of the spirit. And you expect dumb young men to do dumb young men things, and you don't expect forty year old men to do dumb young men things. But if the idea is that at a certain point, I'll have my you know last incident where I get disciplined by anybody for anything in the church, and then after that it'll just be smooth sailing. Oh
1: my goodness! Is
0: ludicrous on the face of it but it is a default assumption under the surface for me <laughs> yeah and, and it and and it's not uh, it's not conducive to continuing to grow in the ways that I want to
1: <laughs> so I've just gone through one of the most painful years of my life and I'm 69. I can remember having a professor at seminary who had been formerly been a Benedictine monk, and he was talking to us one day. The class was on the history of spirituality, Boyer was the text. And I remember him saying one day that he really struggled as a monk to be pure sexually. And one day he went to the father whatever they call him, I forget what the name is. Abbott. Yeah, the abbot. And he, he said the abbot was like eighty-three. I think it was eighty-three. <laughs> and he said, How long am I going to have to continue to struggle with my lust? Who knows? He might have said his concupiscence. And the guy looks at him and he says, Well, at 83. <laughs> and and yeah, you're right. The idea, I mean, I how many times have I told children who are resenting being admonished yeah. in the church, my own and others. Look, your father's admonished, your mother's admonished, I'm admonished, elders are admonished. Why should you be the one that doesn't get admonished? Do you really think that when you become an adult you're going to stop failing and stop being disciplined by other people? There's absolutely no way. I would say to you, no, it's not that when you're 40, you stop hitting the guardrail so much. I would say you start hitting the guardrail at slightly different places.
0: Fair. And you're no longer driving a tricycle, you're flying <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. flying a 747. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. I also tell young kids in the church that boy, right now's the time to make your mistakes because you heal quickly. And it's the privilege of youth to make mistakes.
0: Yeah, I can think I can think back vividly on times when I I hit the guardrails hard for a variety of reasons mm-hmm. in different situations. And the sting of humiliation of having to deal with that stuff again mm-hmm. with being being the ass in that situation, I don't think that sting ever goes away. It becomes more and more familiar. It's just like it's just like exercising. I hate doing push-ups I hate it I hate push-ups with a passion and I'm trying to make myself do them more often because I know on the other side of that it's or good good things yeah but it doesn't make me hate them any less <laughs> every time I'm like oh I should do I should do push-ups now and that that thinking of that like I should when my conscience says that was a sin you should confess that sin to somebody I can either be like you know what? I'm just going to wait till I forget about that and then pretend it didn't happen. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And then the problem is I never forget about it.
1: (laughs) Well, I have been one that you have confessed your sins to. And I want to, I don't like you saying that you're the ass because that makes you, it kind of makes it seem as if that's what the other people are thinking. It may be that you're thinking that, but if you're thinking that you shouldn't be. And you know, I, I meet with people, I meet with people who the horrors of the sins, I mean, the people can't even imagine in a good, solid church how serious the sins are, how broken the people are when they confess them. Grown men sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And I'm just going to say, never do you sit there as a pastor or elder and think that that person is an ass. Never. What you actually think is, oh yeah, I can see myself doing that. And sometimes what you think is, I have done that. And so, don't ever, I mean, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm not I'm, trying to I'm thinking of it in, choose in, terms, your
0: words. in, in terms of, in, in the context of, he who's fa- faithful in little will be faithful in much. And the idea that, like, when things that, that seem petty and are just kind of embarrassing, it's like, oh, that was.
1: So, you weren't talking about big things. You were talking about small things.
0: I was talking about just getting in the habit of, in the habit of confessing sins. Not trying to exhaustively confess every sin, uh-huh, but yeah. just recognizing that yeah,
1: yep, if, yep. if you
0: need that muscle for one catastrophic situation once every 10 years and you never exercise it in between, it's not gonna be there when you need it.
1: Yeah, that goes along with something that I often say to couples, which is that submission is a muscle that needs to be exercised. And it's a similar thing confession repentance all these things i don't know that they'll ever become muscle memory for us like with a musician yep. you know or an athlete but yeah we should we should mortify our pride i think that's what you're talking about
0: yeah it's the it's the knowing it never becomes not painful
1: no it never becomes not but,
0: painful you can you can look back at your own life and your own growth and faith and say, "You will not surely die." <laughs> to yourself. To yourself. Yeah. Because yeah. every time it's like, if I confess this, it's going to it's going to it's going to wreck things that I care yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. It's going to damage my marriage. My wife will never look at me the same way if I confess this thing or that thing. Yeah.
1: I think we have to realize that. Sin is ugly. Sin is irrational, and sin does really harm the ones that love us, and our neighbors. And sin is a violation of God. Sin is very serious. So I don't want to minimize, um, the exceeding ugliness, sinfulness of sin, the ugliness, the the horror. Um. But I also, it takes a church. And God has given the church the gift of the keys that he delegates the officers of the church. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And it is the office of Christians to say to one another, your sins are forgiven. Obviously, it's the office of of a husband to say that to his wife and his wife to say that See, to her husband and parents to their children. And yeah. at times children to their parents, trust me. Yep. Um, and so I want us, I want to make a point of saying how important it is for us to have faith for mortification and to view it as both painful and beautiful. honestly, we are so so satiated with convenience, technology, food, everything today, that when we hit anything that's painful, we think that the pain's wrong.
0: Yeah, this shouldn't. This shouldn't. Yeah, hurt.
1: yeah. And Christians, Christians don't become Christians; they're not regenerated without pain.
0: Flowery beds of ease. Something, yeah, something.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's somehow we've we've gotten this idea that once we get through the knothole of regeneration of repentance and faith, that the, the normal Christian life is maybe sad at times because of sickness, death, losing a job, stuff like that. But no, the real pain of our lives is sin. And it is sanctification is brutal. You know, Augustine says that being a child is torment. And if being a child is torment, being a Christian, you know, Calvin says, um, you know, in that statement where, you know, if the dead are not raised, then we are of all men's most, most fooled. And he says, you know, the reason we're the most stupid is because we've given everything up to follow Christ. And man, that was a shock when I first read that, because that's not normally the way I think. But yeah, we do die to ourselves daily. We see our sin clearly. We don't live in beds of ease. And so, yeah, I think that your point about, you know, I'm the ass, do I have to be the ass again? If you're not just talking about huge sins, you're just talking about, right...
0: Yeah, I'm I'm talking about the the more mundane daily yeah, habits. Okay.
1: Yeah. Then I have no objection to it. I just don't want people to think that they better not confess the sins that are destroying them and their families. I want them to come and confess Oh, absolutely. Them. Absolutely.
0: I I tend in a direction of being more attentively focused on. Minor sins disproportionately.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> but but certainly for my kids, modeling to them what it means to have that muscle and and flex that muscle of asking for forgiveness. Yeah, yeah. Not just being the dad who's like, you you did this thing to your brother. You need to apologize to him and ask for his forgiveness. I can't just be the enforcer who points out sins and adjudicates. Mm-hmm. I have to show them that. I'm I'm in the dock every day too. Yeah, yeah.
1: I one of the most frequent things I've heard from college students, we're in a university community, and so we I've spent my wife and I and you we spend our lives around the uni students and stuff. One of the things I've heard most frequently from kids that grow up in Christian homes is that their father has never asked their forgiveness. He's never apologized to them. And Child protective services might not take your children away because of that, but if I get a chance, I will. That's child abuse. Defy tyrants. Yeah, yeah, it's absolute child abuse for a child to grow up thinking that when he becomes a parent,
0: he'll have the perquisite of never having to apologize. Absolutely,
1: again. absolutely. It's like over in Asia, in Taiwan, you know, the norm is the the wife, when she marries the husband, goes into her mother-in-law's home and her mother-in-law controls her husband and tortures her. No thanks. And then when she has a son that gets married, she has the privilege of the wonderful privilege of being able it to take back yeah paying it forward <laughs> that's a pretty funny image usually paying it forward is a good thing yeah
0: i got neuroses now you have some
1: yeah yeah i suffered now you're gonna do it <laughs> yeah
0: as we as we talk i i often end up thinking of new yorker cartoons and uh earlier when you were talking about the benedictine there's a, a funny cartoon of these two monks one very like Withered old monk, Tibetan monks, and they're just kneeling side by side, and the older monk is looking at the young, you know, the young monk saying, What do you mean? What comes next? <laughs> <laughs> this is it. This uh, is the whole thing. We just keep doing this. What do you
1: mean? If I were the older guy, I'd say, shut up. <laughs> Don't ask that his question. His whole face again. Was,
0: his whole face was saying shut up. <laughs> but the other thing that I think about is I'm not going to get it right. Um, I was talking to one of my my friends, one of my employees, Ben, about how we make decisions in our company and the realization that a lot of our decisions are going to be wrong. If we think of the accuracy of our choices like a batting average, we're never going to bat 1,000. If we're exceptional, we'll bat 400. We'll get less than half of the calls right. But we want as many at-bats as we can get. We want to swing at as many pitches as we can because we're going to connect hard on some of them, and it's going to really pay off. And thinking about how my kids participate in church, if I'm not home to see them at lunch, there are things happening that I don't know about, and I'm not at youth group seeing what happens, but somebody's there at youth group, mm-hmm. and that person isn't always seeing what happens with every kid, mm-hmm. but they're seeing things that I don't get to see in a context that I don't get to see them, and mm-hmm. every single one of those interactions is an at-bat where something in my in my son or my daughter's life can come to light, can be confessed, can be learned, can be understood, can be rebuked, can be rebuked. And recognizing that it isn't the case that i need to find a church where the youth pastor is going to bat a thousand that doesn't exist
1: but but andrew this is the thing i one of the things i principally despair over at this point in my life the absolute hatred for authority that's in the church I have just been putting a syllabus together for the class I'm going to teach for our seminary starting in a couple of weeks on pastoral leadership. And, and so I wanted to introduce them to the nature of shepherding in the church and the necessity for leadership in the church.
0: Not optional.
1: Yeah, it's not optional. And so I'm going to go through a whole bunch of pastors, name them, and say, some of them what they do poorly, some of them what they do well. And then at the end I said, you know, God has a huge variety of gifts, strengths, and weaknesses that he uses to be shepherds of churches. And then I say, you do not have the option. You know, I'm writing the description up for the class. And I say, you don't have the option of denying your authority, or abdicating or minimizing it. One of the reasons pastors, I mean, pastors aren't stupid. Pastors know how people want their ears scratched. And pastors know that nobody wants authority coming from anybody in the church. Nobody wants anybody in the church to be an authority. And so when we have our children under any authority in the church, any I can remember watching Heather and Doug with one of their sons and their pain on their face when I would say something having to do with a touchy subject, which I knew about with their family. And I realized as I was preaching that they had to make a decision to trust me and that my call was not their call. You know what I'm saying? We have to get over this notion, this wicked notion, that we only submit to leaders who are mostly right when they are right. I mean, that really is the standard in the church. I want to use use an illustration. We had a guy who was working with our high school students, and he was taking care. He went on a trip with one of my children. And when he came back, he took me aside in the foyer, And he said, you know, your son Taylor did it, did it, did it, did it, did it. And it was like pouring uh, a triaxle of rotten fish on top of me, you know, in between services, I think it was. So I was going to have to preach again, you know, and I felt myself getting defensive, you know, and then I realized that I should not get defensive. I knew a number of things he was saying about Taylor actually were wrong. Yeah, I knew some of them were very right. And I was resenting the ones that were wrong. And so you know what I did? I went and got Taylor. I brought him into the library, the church library at the time. And I said, listen, I want you to hear what this individual just said to me about your behavior on the trip. And so he repeated everything. I did not in the slightest minimize, excuse. I didn't afterwards go to Taylor and say he was wrong about this, he was right about this. Parents have to let other Christians have at their children. Now, there are some people who uh, have malice aforethought about the pastor's children. I will tell you that. And you might have to protect your children from them. But we really have to get all the help we can from godly men and women. You say, well, I don't have any godly men and women that are trying to influence my children. And I pity you. I'd say, quit your job and move to a church where you can have that. I I don't know what my children would be like if I couldn't have raised them with you. And with Caitlin and with the people of Trinity. I have no idea what my children would have been like. Yeah. Yeah, a good church
0: is like oxygen. In one sense, yeah, sure, it's optional. <laughs> You're going to die without it, but it's optional.
1: Yeah, I keep telling people, the older I get, the more I say to people about churches that you better be careful what churches you're in. And by that, I don't mean make sure you find a reformed church that's post-millennial or pre-millennial or dispense. Now, I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm saying you better be careful the churches you're in, what culture they have about the fundamentals, about sexuality, about marriage, about children, about work, about money, because we are what we eat. And every single time you're with the body of Christ, you're eating. And your children are going to reflect what you had the men eating as they grew to adulthood. Yep. It's a very serious thing. And even though we believe in the home and the influence of fathers and mothers and older siblings on younger siblings... And we would like to think that what we really need to do is make sure that our home is has the right homeschool curriculum, has the right dinner time, has the right chores. The fact is, our children are going to live the vast majority of their lives outside of our home. And God has always had, you look at Jesus back in Jerusalem, you look at Jonathan Edwards, there were a whole bunch of Teenagers who were looking at a midwife manual. And he 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 named names from the pulpit of his church Sunday morning. You know, there's no way to escape that our children are growing up with the other children of the church. I don't care if you go back into colonial times, Puritan churches, whenever. And we have to be very aware that God has been pleased to have his people transfer. Godly culture, and by that I don't mean truth, beauty, and goodness, although that's cultural. What I mean is the culture of the way adults are treated, the way we respond to authority, the way we treat women when we're men, and men when we're women. This It's so important that we get as much help as we can from other Christians.
0: Yeah. When you said earlier you have to let other people go at your children and, and teach them and and be wrong. I was thinking to myself, I can see a ditch on both sides of that where some parents will never allow anybody to criticize or discipline their child without the parent stepping in to undercut it in some way. <laughs> and others will never step in to protect or defend their child even in the case of malice aforethought, even in the case of a person being clearly way off base. And for my kids to receive rebuke and correction and instruction and exhortation from somebody in the church and have me be aware of it and not try to circumvent it, I want my kids to know I'm doing that deliberately. It's not because I don't have the other gear. I'm choosing to be in this gear having the gear of letting your child be shaped by somebody else and also having the gear when appropriate of being willing to be hard as Flint when someone is going after your kid inappropriately. I think parents actually need to be told to be <clears throat> both those things that I think most parents tend to just sort of a docile. They're neither hot nor cold in a lot of ways.
1: I've had a lot of parents Be hard as flint in defense of their children, a lot of them, and almost always they're wrong. And it's not me. Generally, when you're a senior pastor, your job is to support the people that work directly with the youth. Yeah. And, I I know there are cases, and I would I would say that the principal case today is predators, sexual predators. We've had a number of sexual predators against our children who were in the church. And in fact, the two cases I'm thinking of immediate were both homosexual. And yes, with that, it's over. I remember one night saying to Michael, Michael, your relationship with her is over. That woman is now living butch lesbian life yeah and it was just clear that there was an emotional manipulation and intensity that made no sense outside of a romantic relationship and so one night we just said to her that relationship is over so yes there are times where you have to be unflinching unflinching in defending your children but I want to warn people listening Normally, that isn't the case. Normally, the case is that parents refuse to allow other people to discipline, to rebuke, to admonish, to correct their children. And I have spent so much time on my elders board before I resigned the position For years, I have been warning the elders at meetings that they must not undercut the discipline of their children by other adults in the church.
0: And do you think that parents tend to resist that because they're actually feeling how their work and their decisions and their parenting...
1: Absolutely. Yeah. What I always say to them is, listen... God has ordained it that such a thing as sex exists. And because sex exists, your little sweet family unit at some point is going to be broken because your daughter or your son is going to want to have their own home. And the problem is, as they become adults, they're going to begin to have a wider sphere of life to have more friends, they're going to begin to put on public display your sins as they were growing up. And as long as they were just nice little homeschooled kids, you know, uh, you could control that. You, you could package them. You could tell them, don't you ever talk to anybody about that movie we just watched, you know, but as your children get over, they it will spills out. Yeah, it will. It will. They will live out loud. Every cent. And so, yeah, parents feel like they're stripped naked by their teenagers. That everything that they've done wrong is on public display. And I say to the guys in in the elders meeting, that's good. It happens to all of us. You need that. It's good. And then I tell them, if we do not allow each other to discipline us about how we raise our children and to discipline our children, I don't mean spanking I mean, if we don't allow ourselves to be talked to about things that are problems with our kids and we don't allow our children to be talked to about problems they have, this church will die. And I'm convinced that that is the main cause of death of churches. And I know you've heard me say this, but I'm going to, I'm going to use it again. There was a profile of Freddie Atlas who was the main boxing trainer in on the east coast and it was in the new yorker and i don't remember much about it but i do remember him saying that every boxer he's had he has to train him not to tell himself a lie he says they all tell the lie they all tell themselves when they get in the ring if i don't hit him hard he won't hit me hard now we all can understand that in boxing yep that Is a culture that can permeate an elders board and take root and grow into a monstrosity of a church where
0: I cut him slack, he cuts me slack, we all end up with slack, and then there's nothing we don't talk about the
1: pastor's children, about his wife, we don't talk about the elders' wives, and then we don't talk about the And it absolutely destroys faith because if your leadership expects to be above. Being rebuked, admonished, instructed, exhorted. Well, Tim, what's the point of being in church leadership if you don't finally get to be above being
0: exhorted by people?
1: You know that we do not hide the sins of the elders and pastors' children. Yes. And so, again, you want as much help as you can get in raising your children. You want other people's observations. And yeah, go back to your illustration of, you know, we're going to swing, maybe connect, you know, 400 out of 1,000. But man, those 400 are gold.
0: But if we only ever get, if we only ever let everybody else have 20 at-bats with our kids, that's only a few hits.
1: Unfortunately, there are a lot of Christian parents that are very jealous to limit the influence of their church and other people to their children. I once had a woman call me. I had spoken at a conference at their church and warned against the sins of sexual abuse and incest. And about six months later, she called me one evening, different part of the country, and she said she had just caught her son in the bedroom of three of her daughters. They had had a, a bunch of children. And, uh, it was very clear right away that there was incest in the home. And so I was trying to figure out what had been the opening, what had been the vulnerability. Usually that stuff doesn't just pop out of nowhere. And so I began to examine her marriage, examine her husband in the computer I began to, you know, what's diet? Yeah, probe. I began to probe. And I came up with nothing. Mary was on the phone with me. And it just didn't make sense. It didn't make sense that something was such, apparently such a problem in their home, but there was no etiology. There was the origin. Terminal disease,
0: zero symptoms. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: And so finally I said to her, let me ask you another question. I said, when you were growing up, was there any, um, was there any sexual uh, relationships in the home that you grew up in? So I would have said it like this. Were there any, was there any inappropriate sex, sexual relationships in the home that you grew up in as a child? And it was very interesting. Her response was like, no. But there was that tiny little hesitation before she said no. And I don't remember whether Mary Lee or I said it to her at that point, but we said, wait, wait a second, what's up with that hesitation? Well, then it came out that she had had sex with her two of her sisters. Then it came out that because of that, she had been harmed in her ability to be on guard and to take seriously little things she'd seen with her children but had just sort of swept under the rug. Now, I'm telling this story not for the sake of that, but to say this. I think she was crying, and she said, I have worked so hard to keep outside influences from harming my children. And so it was a typical agrarian, you know, homeschooling, you know, us and our family and everything. And I said to her, so in other words, the danger, nobody else to blame. Yep, the danger was outside your home, but now what you have learned is you were the danger. We have to realize that God sees everything. We may be able to hide things from people at church, from our neighbors and everything, but we really do need to have intimacy with other Christians so that they can warn us and so they can point out areas that we need to grow in and so they can ask us why we're putting our kids in daycare so that we can have some profession as, as a woman. You know, this stuff is very important. And then as our children grow up, we need to not be protective, trying to keep them away from other people in the church because they're the problem. Actually, we're the problem.
0: So, the last question I wanted to ask is what about the vision for your children's growth and participation in the church for the rest of their lives? So, if we think of the church as like the fertile soil that our kids and their families and their kids are going to grow up in, it's not probable in this day and age that our kids are going to re- are going to remain in the same congregation that we came to faith in, grew up in, got married and started a home in. They're probably going to go someplace else. They're probably going to end up geographically someplace else. And if we teach them to love this church, but we don't teach them to love the church, we've prepared them to to completely fail to thrive once they're launched, once they're out?
1: That's a very difficult question. And the reason is that the church you're in, the church that I serve for decades actually had church discipline of a formal nature. It could take years to get to that point with people, but when it was needed, it was done. And because of that, the church was slandered by other pastors in the community. And I knew what was being said about us, and I knew how it was hurting the people, the sheep of the church, And you're always trying to figure out how to protect the sheep from the slander and the false accusations and often the hatred for the church, even within the Christian school. And so one of the things I became convinced that I had to do was in my preaching and teaching and in my care for for the sheep... I had to explain to them exactly what it was about us that infuriated people. But I couldn't, I had, it was almost impossible to do that without then saying, and what we're doing is right. And the minute you say what we're doing is right, we do this because of this, what we're doing is right. And that's why these people are against us. What you end up doing is setting up silo yeah and you don't want to do that and the silo is named we're the only biblical church you're not saying that and yet the the other pastors and churches in the community that are slandering the church are are the pastors that are most like you except without discipline and pastoral care theologically You know, they're the ones that are in Christian school with your kids. The Unitarian Universalist Church doesn't doesn't waste any time talking about you. to, they'd love to have a peanut gallery at our church and just watch and eat popcorn. It's so exotic, (laughs) you know, and we don't have sore. you know. It is true that if you have something approximating a historic reformed church in terms of fellowship, orthodoxy of doctrine, uh, your worship, your preaching, your sacramentology, all these things, and you have pastoral care and church discipline, that it's going to be very hard for your children to find a church that has any resemblance. And they will move away. For one thing, they'll go to university. And, well, most of them will. And you have to teach them to love the church. And so I'm just, I don't really have an answer for this, other than to say it's extremely important that your children love the bride of Christ and have a concept of that that the church is our mother. Calvin has a wonderful, wonderful section on this in book four of the Institutes where he talks about this mother caring for us as long as we're here on earth. And it's, a, it's wonderful about motherhood and it's wonderful about the church. Um, I don't know how to defend the sheep from the malice against biblical churches without them being at risk of being proud, thinking it's the only biblical church. And so what I love is I love when my grandchildren now, it used to be my children go away and find, I have a couple of grandchildren up at Hillsdale and there's this church, I think it's called Countryside if I remember correctly, Mm And now a whole bunch of kids from our church are going to this church up in Michigan. And I mean, I just get such joy out of them having found a church. So yeah, I don't know how to tell you to do it. Just a few weeks ago, my wife and I got
0: to visit a church in just outside Ithaca, New York. I'm from the Finger Lakes region. And we were down there visiting some friends of ours who used to be in Bloomington. And are now uh, in Ithaca because the husband is going to Cornell. And we drove down. We were in Rochester visiting my family. We drove down to Ithaca, just Caitlin and I. And we went to church with them. And it was in a little town just up the up the lake from from Ithaca. And it was packed. Summer vacation. There were a ton of college students in there. There were a whole bunch of different races. There were some Asians and some blacks and people of a wide variety of ages. The church was full. And I was honestly very surprised. It was just a little tiny town. The, the building didn't have AC. They had the doors and windows open and had fans on. Mm-hmm. And it was cozy and it was pews. It was an old building, mm-hmm. but it was full. Like People came in five minutes after church started and had a hard time finding a pew. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards they had a fellowship hall in the basement and they invited everybody downstairs and they had mediocre coffee and lots of snacks and everybody just hung out. There were a bunch of kids running around. They were playing carpet ball in the corner. And everybody just sat around and talked. And there were Cornell professors and academic people and a wide range of things. And I ended up meeting, my wife and I met the pastor's wife. And she came over and introduced herself and asked what we were doing there and who we knew, how we'd ended up there. And both Caitlin and I commented like we were really surprised to see this vibrant church with this mix of people in this little town. And what she said was, basically, during COVID, almost all the churches in Ithaca essentially just ceased functioning for a period of time. And Cornell in particular had really strict policies that on or off campus for school functions or anything else, their students couldn't be involved in anything that included groups of more than it was like 10 or 15. And it was a, it was like you could be suspended from school or expelled if you violated this policy. And they were essentially saying to their students, you can't attend church. Mm -hmm. And what this church (coughs) did was bent over backwards to find a way to have Multiple small groups meeting simultaneously <laughs> that were of a sufficiently small size that Cornell students could attend them, and they they found that everybody who was hungry to be still a part of a living church all ended up at their church. And I said, "So is it normally this busy in the summer when the students are away?" And the guy said, "We're we have to go to two services every when school starts back up. We have to we ha, will have to have two services because we will not be able to fit everybody." Yeah, yeah. And I looked at that and went, wow, praise God. I would never have thought to look here for this. And what God God used COVID to, to winnow out all the people who were just doing church out of routine. And if Cornell told them not to go to church, they're like, yes, sir, right away, never again. And they're just gone. And everybody else who had this kernel that they couldn't let go of, they had to be in church. They had to have fellowship.
1: Yeah. That's they ended up there. One of the beautiful things about COVID is that I never know what label to put on them. I want to say normal evangelical. It used to be that we were able to say evangelical and mainline, and mainline were the baddies. Well, I don't want to just give up evangelical and make that the baddies. But these evangelical churches that do emotive, like Hillsong kind of crud, everything's subjective, everything's me and Jesus and love, you know? Um, What I hear is that post-COVID...
0: They're decimated.
1: They're decimated. And I rejoice in that. And, you know, I have heard about churches where some of the, you know, the pillars of the church have said that they enjoy watching worship at home and they're just going to stay home. And I think that's true all over the country. And again, how can you survive without the fellowship? How, How can you survive without a church of true fellowship? I don't understand that. How can you be a Christian and not desperately need to be with other christians.
0: Yeah, a living church is like oxygen. If you need it and you don't have it, you cannot be unaware of that. You die. It reminds me uh T.S. Eliot's poem The Hollow Men ends with the this is the way the world ends not with a bang but a whimper. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of what happened in covid was a lot of a lot of things just got quietly smothered to death. Yep. And demonstrated by going
1: quietly that the life wasn't in them. Yeah, that's so sad. And yet, I guarantee you, in every one of those churches, if you listened to the preaching, if you watched how they administered the sacraments, there was a reason that there was no life in the churches.
0: It's because they had their theology wrong, obviously. They just fixed that.
1: (laughs) How can you have your theology right with your practice? Yeah wrong. And yet that seems to be the choice that a lot of the people, you know, we've had a lot of, I remember one year we lost a quarter of our congregation just because of people moving on after getting degrees. Yep. And what we always hear from them is wherever they go, they have a choice between churches with good doctrine and bad fellowship or churches with good fellowship and bad doctrine. And it's really a tragedy that we don't... (laughs) It's a tragedy that so many people who have an understanding of biblical doctrine seem not to need fellowship.
0: Is that a bad fruit of evangelicalism? A focus on individualism, me and my Bible, me and Jesus directly?
1: It is true that popular culture I've been reading Charles Taylor's A Secular Age, and he makes a big deal out of, you know, starting the 50s and 60s, I mean, obviously the 60s, where uh, people have been on the pursuit of authenticity. And of course, authenticity (laughs) maybe doesn't matter anywhere as much as it does when it comes to religion. You know, people have this notion that if it's an authentic expression of what's inside of them, then it's holy. It's religious, it's good, it's Christian. So I think that's part of it. Now, I think that with Reformed churches, it's because Reformed churches are filled with people who I would say in many cases their highest value is risk aversion. They want to be right. And this is probably another podcast. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the highest value is not making a mistake. And there is no way to have a commitment to the love and fellowship of the church without having your mistakes hurt other people and their mistakes hurting you. Yeah.
0: Confession of sin is the admission of mistakes.
1: And so I think there's probably different reasons for evangelical churches and for Reformed churches. And I think Reformed churches... Everybody has to have their their T's crossed and their I's dotted. And once they know that they've dotted their I's and crossed their T's, they're good to go. And it never occurs to them what you were saying at the very beginning about cultivating your ability to confess your sins.
0: And change your mind.
1: And change your mind and have disagreements that aren't quarrels and... In other words, organic life, real life.
0: Yeah, if your theology at 60 is the same as your theology at 20, something's wrong.
1: Yeah, and I can hear people saying, well, you know, (laughs) unfortunately, I have people in my brain. I can't get them out of my brain. (laughs) I can just imagine how people would respond to that. They would think that means that you think that... An Arminian at 20 should become Reformed at sixteen. an Arminian, and a th- Reformed at 20 should become an Arminian. We're not talking about stuff like that. We're talking about a growth in obedience that is the product of the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, that as you grow in obedience, you understand more. We obey to understand. If people can get that into their minds, that obedience gives us more knowledge and wisdom that's godly. And so, yes, your theology does change. I mean, if I wasn't learning the way I'm learning right now, I don't know what I'd do. I'm learning so much right now. And so, yes, you know, the Christian century was the liberal mainline magazine for the first order of my life, and I read it for two things. I read it because they'd ask well-known people to list their top 25 books and why. And I mean, that was one of the most, one of my favorite things that I've ever had in any periodical I'd subscribe to. I've subscribed to a ton of periodicals. But the second thing was, they would ask famous people who were religious leaders to say what they got wrong. And man, I'm fearful that the reform leaders of our time would say they got nothing wrong.
0: Or or they would say, if I failed, <laughs> I failed in not not espousing this position hard
1: enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have enough zeal. I didn't stick to my guns yeah, I often didn't enough. St- yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I should have chosen a few more hills to die on yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap well, I look forward to Seeing my kids grow up In the church It's going to be gnarly It's going to be joyful It'll be painful It'll be embarrassing for them And embarrassing for me And embarrassing for other people But it's so but it's beautiful
1: life. It's real life It is so beautiful And the only reason we keep talking about the parts that are embarrassing and humiliating is that if you allow those things to be stumbling blocks to your loving the church and giving yourself and your children to them, you won't get all that beauty and love and glory.
0: It's a package deal.
1: And, you know, so just remember, God nurses us through... The church, which is our mother. And he does that with our children too. And don't be too proud to come to her to be fed.
0: Out of Our Minds is brought to you by New Geneva Academy. NGA trains men for the work of ministry. For more information, go to newgenevaacademy.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.